All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with musician Jim Peterick about the secret sauce behind songwriting, the Ides of March, writing Eye of the Tiger, forming the band Survivor, Sly Stallone, TV jingles, and more. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, Please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. all right jim take us back in time you're a youngster are you a book reader fort builder troublemaker or all the above (laughs) (laughs) well you know i was kind of a a music guy from the age I was four. My sisters, they played ukulele and we used to, my parents go down to Florida every year to visit my relatives and they had the ukuleles. I had my little ukulele, well, they were all little guitars. <laughs> I had a ukulele and my sisters taught me how to play, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, really simple songs, you know. So that was really my start in music, the, the great memories of my two older sisters and me. I was four and they were like, you know, 10 and 12, you know, and they taught me all the chords, all four chords, you know, all the ones you need to know. (laughs) (laughs) And those were great times going down to my Uncle Raymond's uh, place. Uh, He had a soft ice cream stand in uh, Miami and we used to let me spoon on the the crushed pineapple onto the the Sundays and that heaven. So all those great memories conflated into a thing called music, you know. Did you grow up in Miami? Is that where you would say you had your roots? Always Berwyn, Illinois, but we always traveled down to Florida in our 52 Chrysler New Yorker and visited my relatives. All the Ides of March grew up in Berwyn, Illinois. In fact, Larry, who you just met briefly, still lives in that same house. Yeah, that the Ides of March used to um, rehearse in ever since the beginning of the Ides of March in 1964. So uh, Jim, were either your parents, were they musical at all? My dad, very musical, you know, because he grew up in, in the depression, you know, he worked automatic electric adjusting relays at at the phone company. But on weekends, he had a band. Uh, I guess you'd call it a polka band, but they did standards and like the top 40 of that day. They were called the hi-hatters. And in the basement, there are the stands with the hi-hatters and the the hat, you know, and I used to look down there. And when I was old enough, you know, I was my first instrument was actually piano, but then I switched to saxophone. And when I was like 10 years old, I would sneak over and sit on the bandstand, stand on the bandstand in back of the guys and play sax with the, with the hi-hatters. And <laughs> those were great times. That's So your first instrument was, I'm sorry, I missed it. Uh, piano was piano. first. Piano was first. Uh, you know, I learned enough to know that I knew enough. You know, mm. Mr. Ulrich was boring. And um, so no offense, Mr. <laughs> Ulrich, but uh, I learned enough to, you know, fiddle around it to what I call a songwriter's piano, which always served me well. Then I I really, you know, 
the Ides of March were a band now, and we saw like the Ventures, you know, on TV playing Walk, Don't Run, and that was before the Beatles, right? And like, you know, 63. Right. Uh, before there was any, you know, influx of a, a Liverpool thing. We were big Ventures fans, and we did, you know, like Walk, Don't Run. You know, and just love that stuff. And it was like surf music, really. But then, of course, the Beatles came along, and uh, we saw them first on a, like a special, like a BB, BBC grainy foot, footage uh, on the Jack Parr show. And then, you know, I go to the music store and said, God, there's this band that's coming, Mrs. Balkan. They're called the Beatles. And she's just laughing, the Beatles. Forget about it. You know, I said, okay, just wait. About a month later, they're on, on uh, Ed Sullivan, and the country is going crazy. Go back to the Balkans music store, and I said, see, you were right. <laughs> uh, Jim, when you think about doing formative films and TV shows that you grew up on, what comes into your head? Shindig, Hullabaloo, uh, The Ed Sullivan Show, uh, Jack Parr, because he had musical guests, Steve Allen. I mean, we go way back. Like, I was born in 50, so the 50s were a great time. I remember Elvis Presley televised from the waist down because they didn't want those suggestive hips swinging in our young teenagers' uh, faces, you know. And uh, he's doing Hound Dog and Don't Be Cruel, and I was going crazy. I was <laughs> six years old. He was just Mr. Cool. Did you ever have to deal with stage fright? And if you did, how'd you overcome it? Actually, stage fright was never a part of, of my life. I was born a ham. I, I was like thrust into the spotlight, you know, because my sisters thought I was a star. They didn't know any better. And uh, so I was very, very comfortable in the spotlight, very comfortable on stage. Never any stage fright, like, let me at it. That was kind of my attitude. What about your very first time on stage, whatever you consider that to be, whether it was with the church band or school yeah. or whatever? Well, yeah. It was the Ides, well, it was before the, we were called the Ides of March, we were called the Shondells. We eventually had to change our name because Tommy James and the Shondells came along with Anki Panky, and we go, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. And we're all in high school reading Julius Caesar, Bob Bergman, our bass player, to this day our bass player. Original four guys still together after 60 years next year. Said, you know, I'm reading Julius Caesar right now, and there's this great phrase, beware the Ides of March. And we look at each other and go, that's our new name, the Ides of March. It's way better than the Shondells anyway. It's a cool name. <laughs> Around what age were you when you began to take you know, music seriously and you think, you know what, I can make a career out of this thing? Well, you know, we never thought in terms of career. Mm. We just thought of in terms of having a great time. It's like the greatest club you could belong to is called the Ides of March. We would get together in Larry's basement and rehearse and learn the top 40, but then we would sneak in originals that I would write or co-write with the band. In 66, I wrote kind of a catchy song that I showed the guys, and it started like this. And Larry would sing, I told you he was a fool, you wouldn't listen to me, you'll break your heart, you wouldn't listen to me. And we were channeling everything we were hearing on the radio, the Hollies and the Bo Brummels, and we kind of flitted it all into a hit called You Wouldn't Listen and went to 42 nationally. 
number one in Chicago for five weeks, and suddenly we're on the road with the Almond Brothers, who at that time were called the Almond Joys, and uh, <laughs> just have, having a blast. And we, you know, we took the train down to Florida. We got off the train, and all of our mic stands were sheared off at the base. And we learned a lesson about traveling with equipment on a train. <laughs> So correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but you know, at one point I th- you were uh, you were selling uh, and writing jingles for commercials, right? I was mainly singing them. I, uh, you know, the writing part. Usually, I would show up to one of the jingle houses. I call them the Three Dicks: Dick Boyle, Dick Marks, and Dick Dick Boyle, Dick Marks, and Dick Reynolds. The Three Dicks, and they were all great guys. They weren't dicks, really. <laughs> uh, the Ides had just had the hit vehicle, and I was on the front, you know. I, I call it the beer and tires voice, and that's what I became. I'm a friend of stranger in the black sedan. Won't you hop inside my car? I got pictures. Kenny, I'm a lovable man. Take it to the nearest stop. I'm your vehicle, baby. I'll take you anywhere you want to go. I'm your vehicle, woman. I'm sure you know that I love you, I need you, I want you, got to have your child. Great God in heaven, you know I love, I love you. <laughs> so I was the, suddenly the beer and tires voice and the three dicks would be calling me to do all these jingles, which was extremely luc- lucrative. You know, because I was trying to finance the next demo tape for the Ides of March or, you know, finance whatever. Jingles were great, you know, and I I had things like... Now that you've had a drink, oh, what a time to think. I should have had a V8. And on and on and on. (laughs) And those were actually kind of fun times because in the same room, there was all these great singers from... The Chicago scene, the jingle singers like Bonnie Herman and Bob Bowker. But then there was this other guy. He always came uh, wearing a beret, and he sat in the when he wasn't singing to the side and was re- reading sci-fi books. And I got to meet him. His name was Dave Bickler. Mm. And uh, fast forward to a few years later, when I was putting together the group Survivor, and he was the first guy I called to sing and. Uh, Dave Bickler joined what became Survivor, was called the Jim Peterick Band. But it was myself, Dave Bickler, Frankie Sullivan, and Gary Smith and Des Johnson. And we became Survivor. So, Jim, was it you created Survivor? You were going on hiatus with the Eyes of March, right? In 73, uh, we did our last concert. It wasn't really our last concert, but for 17 years, it was our last concert because, well, you know, for one thing, I wanted to try different avenues, and uh, you know, everybody had like a different career path. We didn't get a lot of encouragement just to keep going. And sometimes I wish we had, but you know, mm. history takes its course, and it is what it is. And um, it happened the way it was supposed to happen. While we're talking about Survivor for a second, I just wanted to ask you, what were those initial conversations like with Sly Stallone about the Rocky soundtrack? <laughs> Right. Well, you know, that's a very funny story because it started with a message on my answer machine. You know, that was in the days when there was a cassette running, you know, 
it, it was intentional at all, you know. And I, I got home one day and I was sorting the mail, you know, and I hear a message from my sister and another one from my friend Steve. And then I, then I hear, hey, yo, Jim, it's a nice answering machine you got there. Give me a call, Sylvester Stallone. I click and I keep sorting mail, you know, thinking it's such a joke. And my wife, God bless her, she overheard that and said, who is that? And I said, ah, it's some joker pretending to be Stallone, you know. And she said something loving like, you idiot. You better call them back. They're just on the off chance. Call that 213 area code, you know, good sign. And I hear he answers, yo, this is a good sign. So I said, this is Jim Peterick. Is this really Sylvester Stallone? He goes, hey, Jimbo, call me Sly. You know, here <laughs> I a am. cucumber. <laughs> yeah. So here I am. I sober up real quickly. And I said, nice talking to you, Sly. What's going on? And he says, well, I'm a big fan of Survivor. I love that one song, Poor Man's Son, that you guys did. Tony Scotty, head of the label, played it for me. He said, that's the sound I want for my new movie, Rocky Three. I said, well, what about going to fly now? Oh, yeah, that, 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 that's nice. You know, that's old school. I need something new, something fresh, something for the kids. Can you help me out? I said, you're damn right. And he sends us the rough cut of the movie, and I got together with Frankie, and, and we see, uh, you know, Mr. T looking fierce with his mohawk rising up, you know, and just looking very, very uh, threatening. And you see Stallone kind of getting soft doing Master Charge commercials, you know. And I had my guitar around my neck and I just was trying to catch the pulse and I just started going like that, you know. And I'm trying to catch the chords with the punches, you know, so it just kind of became... So before you know it, we had this song. We didn't have all the words or whatever yet. But as I was jogging around the neighborhood, because, you know, I, I, I love to run and jog, and I had my little tape recorder with me, and, you know, and Frankie had given me a couple seed lines. He said, uh, back on the street, doing time, taking chances. I, I said, I really like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm running, I'm rising up, back on the street, did my time, took my chances, went the distance. Now I'm back on my feet, just a man and its will to survive. Hell yeah. We go into CRC, Chicago Recording Company, about four days later, called the band together, and we cut that thing in like three takes, you know, and mixed it and sent it to Stallone, and he flipped out. And what a lot of people don't know is that demo version because the deadline was so tight to get into the movie, it's the demo that's used in the movie, Rocky Three. Holy shit. Yeah, and we recorded <laughs> like four days, you know. But when you catch lightning in a bottle, you know, it's really hard to re recreate that. We had to re-record it for our label because the movie company was a different label. So what took us like five, day, six days to complete the first one, took us like a month and a half for the final version, the one that you hear on the radio, it just goes to show you when you catch lightning in a bottle, you can't just catch it twice. You have to work harder to achieve that innocence of the first one. Right. And like you said, catching that lightning in a bottle, when you catch that lightning, there's got to be some indication you guys have as musicians. You've been doing this for a while and you're like, oh, oh, your toes are tapping or you got something going. <laughs> oh, yeah. And goosebumps is another good one, you mm. know. 
And Dave Bickler, just um, unbelievable vocal on that. You know, that really defined his voice and his persona. It's all there in his vocal. So when you're dealing with writing a song for a major film like that, uh, how many channels do you have to go through for approval? Was it just, you know, they just gave you guys free reign and you got the thumbs up? Well, thank God we had a boss named Sylvester Stallone. And pretty much what he said goes, you know, at the time. And he had the power to say, no, this is the song. You know, you don't understand. This is going to be huge. You know, there was really no arguments there. Awesome. You know, so, so with the success of Eye of the Tiger, it's probably a no-brainer to bring you guys back, you know, for the, the burning heart. Right. Uh, we were on the road with REO. We got the second call. Well, more than the second, but second major call from Stallone. And Frankie and I are around the pool, you know, we're, we had this tour with REO, which is amazing. And we get another call from Stallone. Well, you guys did it once. You got to do it twice. What do you mean? Well, Rocky Four. We said, no problem, and he sent us the script. This time, we, we didn't work from the movie. The first time, we had a rough cut of the, of the movie. This time, we're just working with the script. But it was enough. And I remember we had our, our road crew put the Wurlitzer in one of the hotel rooms down a couple days later. And Frankie and I just worked at the piano on this thing. It originally was going to be called The Unmistakable Fire. And in the first line, instead of in the burning heart, it, it was in the human heart, just about to burst. And then the, the big tagline on the course was the unmistakable fire. Okay, good. So we met with Stallone. He says, well, you know, that's nice, you know, but unmistakable fire. I mean, you can use that, but we need a bigger hook at the top, you know. And I don't know exactly who brought up this. It might have been Frankie or it could have been Stallone, but... Someone said, it wasn't me, in the burning heart. And I said, isn't that a song already by uh, Vandenberg? And, and Frank goes, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> so it became Burning Heart. And um, I'm glad it did. You've written a number of songs for a number of bands, Jim. You know, Survivor, Ides of March, 38 Special, Sammy Hagar, it goes on. So What's the secret sauce, in your opinion? you got to know something. Yeah, secret sauce, that's a good term. Um, You know, it's really relatability, I think. Kind of trying to strike some kind of universal chord uh, in a song lyrically. I mean, sure, you need the hook, you need the melody, all that. But you also need something relatable that people go, yeah, uh, I've lived that. I'm your vehicle, baby. I'll take you anywhere you want to go. What guy has not been a slave to the girl he loves and doesn't care what, man, I will take you anywhere you want to go. Great God in heaven, you know, you know, it's just like the universal theme is still love. And uh, my songs tend to be very positive. I don't think there's a lot of doom and gloom in my songs. And I think if there's any heartbreak towards the end, there's a ray of hope. And that's what I like to project. When you're writing songs for other bands, do they, uh, so 38 Special specifically, do they reach out to you? Do they buy a song that you had already written or something like that? Well, a, a little of both. I, had, I would had, had a guardian angel, and he's still alive. His name is John Kaladner, and he's the guy with the long beard. He was in the pump video with Aerosmith in the wedding dress. That was just a character he played. He was just this really eccentric Jewish guy that signed Survivor to our Scotty Brothers deal. And he used to put me together with people because he knew I was a good co-writer. And he's the guy that played Cupid with Henry Paul and Sammy Hagar. 
38 special. And I'm glad to thank John Kaladner for it. I got to tell you. You know, out of all the projects you've worked on musically, which would you consider the most challenging? And it was the one that you lost more sleep over than the others? I lost sleep out of all of them. Totally, you know, tweaking the lyric and rewriting. I have, you know, reams of crumpled up paper and every song still to this day that's not good enough. You know, you just try um, and keep raising the bar. There's a thing called goosebump factor. If I play a song for someone and they get a goosebump, I go, it's a hit, you know, <laughs> or at least it has a good chance. But, you know, I remember singing it to, to Larry's, uh, well, ex-wife uh, many years ago, and I, I, I played her a song. She says, that's a hit. And it was. I think it was like one of the Ides of March hits, and I don't remember which one. But there's an there's innate thing that rings a bell when you when you hear a hook that is magic. So, you know, you got Survivor going on throughout most of the 80s. When do you shift your attention back to the Ides of March and you guys get rolling again? Yeah, good question. In 96, I, I was on the road with, with Survivor. We'd come home for a break, and I just couldn't take it anymore. You know, friction among the band members, you know, without going into much detail, it just wasn't fun anymore. Gotcha. So I was supposed to get on a plane to go to um, Memphis, I believe. Frankie called where are you? You're not at the airport. He said, I said, I'm not getting on. Oh, no, no, come on. I mean, you know, forget it. That All those arguments, forget it. Just, no, I said, that's it. That's it. It's the last gig. They played the show anyway, and it was with 38 Special. They played it as a, a, a trio with the drummer they were using at the time, Dave Bickler and Frankie, just the three of them. I never looked back because I knew there was other chapters ahead, and it wasn't fun. And there was a, a lot of bad feelings, infighting, and just wasn't fun anymore. So when it comes to, you know, live shows that you've seen as a fan, what are some ones that stand out as some of the best and shows you participated in? Are there any that you that stand out to you as mind-blowing looking back? Oh, my God. Well, you know, I, I go way back, you know, to consciously Joni Mitchell, you know, who's one of my songwriting heroes. You know, I'm still a huge fan. I'm uh, best friends with Kathy Richardson, uh, the singer of Jefferson Starship. But I remember seeing Starship way back in, in the Grace Slick days. They were just incredible. It's those early times. Janis Joplin, the Ides of March, we played these giant pop festivals in 70 after Vehicle was a hit. And I remember we opened for Janis Joplin. We just led Zeppelin. We oh, They were for, no, no. That was another show. But we, we toured with everyone in 70, 71, when Vehicle was number one in riding the charts. And uh, I remember after the, the Janis Joplin show, they were great, but she was swigging from that Jack Daniels the whole time on stage. And she's kind of stumbling around backstage. Well, I knew she was staying at the same hotel we were, and she's like, where am I? And, oh, you know, where's my hotel? And in those days, she didn't have minders and... It wasn't professional. And I said, look, I know you're staying at the hotel I'm at and the Ides are at. And I said, just take my arm. And she took my arm and, and I led her back to the hotel, kissed her on the cheek and said goodnight. <laughs> it was such a sweet story. And she was so lost and so drunk. Just a super talent and a gone too soon. So all you gentlemen in the Ides of March, you guys, do you plan on touring further or releasing, working on any new stuff? Well, we've never stopped touring, you know, ever since we got back together. Actually, it was in around 92, 
because I took a hiatus from Survivor for a while and we started playing again. When I left Survivor, then we really put our foot down in 96, in 96 and started touring again and writing new material. And since 96, we probably have five, maybe six, seven new albums. Always fresh new material. We just did another song for a thing that I call Jim Peterkin World Stage, Roots and Shoots, which uh, drops, as the kids say, January 12th on Frontiers. Roots being the the groups that I really came up with, like the Ides of March, like Ario Speedwagon, Don Barnett 38 Special. Those are the roots, and the shoots are the young talent that I've discovered through a you know, various people and talent scouts that I've been developing. So Roots and Shoots Volume 1 uh, comes out on Frontiers January 12th. What is uh, What would you say is the best musical advice you've received in your career, and who gave it to you? Wow. <laughs> the Eyes of March opened for Neil Diamond. <laughs> Larry's laughing because he knows what's coming. <laughs> he had just had Solitary Man. He was fresh in his, his, his career, you know, this trajectory that we knew that was was going to go big. And we opened for, for Neil Diamond at, a, at a, a really great little high school auditorium. We played, and Peter Rick, me being kind of uh, the guy, oh, I, I said to the band, we got a few good ones, but we got to learn all new stuff. And okay, so, you know, we had a hit by that time called You Wouldn't Listen, but we learned all these new songs and we went out there and we thought we were doing great. We went back for an encore that was we nobody asked for. I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> but we went out there, you know, and I was so self-deluded because, you know, the lights and the, you know, and so we're, we're backstage and I go up to Neil Diamond. I said, well, how did you like it, Neil? He goes, hmm, well, Jim, next time, only do your best material. <laughs> Got it. Thanks, Neil. <laughs> My Neil, and he was right. And I learned so much. I learned so much that night. Just uh, stick to what you know. So this is something I like to ask everyone just because you never know someone's background. Uh, have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Hmm. Wow. I, I have. Yeah, but I was like three years old, and I had this reoccurring feeling that I was falling through space. Maybe I was two years old, but I had this reoccurring falling feeling, and I would wake up, and it would scare me, but it, it, it also interested me, what is this? Mm. And it was years later that I figured maybe I was thinking of another life or my life in the womb, but I never experienced anything since then i'll never forget those falling feelings of another place wow well, would you consider do you consider yourself religious or spiritual anything like that definitely spiritual i was raised catholic as i like to call it. i'm a recovering catholic <laughs> but um but i do have a deep belief in something bigger than us all and i pray i ask for assistance i ask for guidance i ask for inspiration and solace. And I always give thanks to the, the people that paved the way for me, my mother and my father and my sister who passed away some years ago and my, my current sister who's still alive and pretty much fighting for her life. And of course, I always thank the Ides of March for being the family that we have been for almost 60 years now, the original four guys, Larry Millis, Jim Peterick, Mike Borch and Bob Berglund. 
And Scott Mays, the newbie, he's been with us for 33 years on keyboards. So, uh, and you've talked to Scott. So yeah. It's a great team, and I'm, I'm very lucky and thankful. Well said, Jim. Well, just to put a bow on everything here, why don't you just tell folks what's on the horizon for you? Is there anything you can share without getting in trouble? Like I said, Jim Pukin World Stage Roots and Shoots in January, and then Volume 2, uh, five months later, with more collaborations and all new material from classic artists paired with new discoveries that I've come across and uh, have been inspired by, and I try to inspire back. Awesome. Well, Jim, thank you again, man. It's been a pleasure to get to chat with you for a little bit here. You too, Justin, and keep rocking. Keep doing what you're doing. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Jim. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.